Oh, good morning, New Life East. Stand to your feet this morning. So good to see you. Let's lift our voices and worship to the Lord today. Come on. When all I see is the battle, you see my victory. Thank you, Jesus. When all I see, sing it. When all I see is a mountain, you see a mountain. And as I walk through the shadow, your love surrounds me. Thank you, Lord. Nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear now. For I am safe here. Lift your voice, come on. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh, the battle belongs to you. Every fear I lay at your feet, I'll sing to the
Uh, how many of you were at First Wednesday on last Wednesday? Just put your hand up like this so we can see you. Oh, New Life released a new uh, record, which is so cool. There's some amazing songs on there. This one's my favorite. Since I'm leading worship this morning, I get to choose. Oh, it's so good. I'm going to teach you the chorus, and then we're going to do the whole thing. Uh, it's pretty easy. I think you can do it. Can you do it? I can't hear you. Hold on. I'm going to take this out. Can you give it a shot? All right. Okay, it goes like this. All right, let me get into the groove. Hold on a second. Here you go. He is always with us, faithful and true in our weakness. He is bringing us through. We're going to do it again. Come on, let's sing it. He is always with faithful and true in our weakness. He is bringing us through a highway through the valley, a promise through the pain. He is always with faithful and true. He is, he is always. a hand.
Oh, how good is the Lord. Oh, he draws us in. He calls you by name. Press into the goodness of the Lord today, friends.
opportunity in worship to take all the pieces of our lives and to gather them up, just offer them before the Lord. And what we can say thank you for is that he is faithful and he is just and he is able to forgive you from all unrighteousness. We know that in scripture and that he is working even when you don't see it. So you can let faith rise up in you and say thank you. Did you just try it this morning? With everything, thank you. church to encourage our faith. That's what Colossians say. That we sing songs, spiritual songs and hymns to one another. And we also say things over one another. Say this with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of the heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. You say it. Throned on the highest praise, you sent 
that you're here this morning. My name is Colin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life East. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If it's your first time with us, we're so glad you're here. Would you stop by Connect Central? It's the banner right outside these doors. We have a gift for you. We'd love to meet you. This is also the moment in our service where we have an opportunity not just to worship with our voices. But you guys sounded great this morning. Thank you for singing. But we also worship with our tithes and our offerings. Worship is taking what is important to us and just giving it back to God. And money is so important to all of us. But when we give is what it does is it, is it changes something in our brain and it says, God, I depend on you. What God does is he takes 
that offering and in the, in the economy of the kingdom of God, he takes what is, what is little and he makes, he makes it much. That's what God does. And we feel a burden to steward your worship to the best of our abilities and there is life-changing things happening across our community. Uh, guys just got back from a men's retreat. If you were on the men's retreat, can you give out a little shout? There were two of you, great. So glad that you were there. Women's retreats, guys, we had 24-7 prayer conference was here over a week ago at New Life North and there, that just was a sweet, sweet spirit at New Life. That was so, so great. We are working to usher in the kingdom of God and your ties and offering, your generosity makes that possible. Thank you. Before we open the word and hear from Pastor Rory this morning, why don't you turn to one another and greet one another in the name of the Lord. Good morning, New Life East. After you have said hello to everyone that you can, you can grab a seat. It is so good to see some of you. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name is Rory. I'm one of the pastors here. And how's it going? Chris Bateman, good to see you. Giving me a wave. If you wave at me, I'll call you out by name, so just know that. Um, It's good to see you guys. Uh, Just one thing before we get started. Um, We have a women's retreat coming up here in just a couple weeks, and today... All of you, next week, it's next week. Today is the last day you can sign up. Last day. So does, so let's just, can you sign up tomorrow? No. Can you sign up today? So sign up today. If you haven't had a chance to sign up, stop by Connect Central, talk with some of our volunteers, they can help you, or you can simply go to newlifechurch.org, go to New Life East page, you will find it. Sign up. Good. Good, fantastic. Um, we have been in a series on the book of First Kings. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to First Kings. We're going to be right around chapter 15, chapter 16 in that general area. Um, today, though, I really want to tell you three stories. I want to tell you a story about the Chicago mob. I want to tell you a story about a young king. And then I want to tell you a story about a World War II pilot. Sounds good? Okay. You guys are much more trusting than Friday night was. They were like, the Chicago mob? All right, let's pray, and then we will uh, we'll hop into the scriptures. God, we ask that you would quiet our minds over these next few minutes, that you would quiet our hearts as we think about all the things that exist outside of church, family, school, work, finances, our jobs. Would you quiet our hearts for a few moments? 
And Spirit, as always, we ask that you would speak to us through these ancient scriptures that are revealed to us as the truth, the very words of God himself. So God, would these scriptures open up our eyes to new realities? Would it open up our minds to a new world? Would it open up our souls to what it is that you are trying to do among us and in our lives? We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. We can throw that first picture up. I want to tell you first a story about a guy named Eddie. Eddie was a, uh, a humble young man, started out in St. Louis, Missouri. Eddie uh, got married when he was just 19 years old, had a couple of kids, lived with those kids and his wife above his father-in-law's grocery store in downtown St. Louis. But Eddie wasn't content with just being like this humble guy who, had, who was making ends meet. He, he wanted more. So he, at night, he, man, he would grind. He would, he would go and take classes so that he could one day pass the bar exam in the state of Missouri. He wanted to become a lawyer. And sure enough, Eddie, through enough hard work and time, that's what he did. Became a lawyer. We can keep that picture up for a little bit. And um, he eventually then adopted, inherited leadership over this this dog track sort of corporation that was going on in St. Louis. He became the president of it. He was overseeing it. He eventually built an operation that was stretching all the way from St. Louis up to the city of Chicago, Illinois. And one day, Eddie, as he's working, he's managing the books, figuring out everything, a, a, a young man walks into his office. And this young man was a well-known man around the city of Chicago, but he wasn't well-known as being like a hero or anything. He was known as being someone who had entrenched the Windy City in all sorts of debauchery from prostitution to gambling to running drugs and alcohol all the way to things like murder. And this young man came in and made a proposition to him that they become longtime business partners and Eddie, for whatever reason, accepted. This young man was a man by the name of Al Capone. Al Capone and Eddie made a deal. They went into business together, and Eddie was Al Capone's right-hand man. Before you know it, they were running dog track operations all over the United States, Chicago, New York, Miami, you name it. They were bringing it in. And Eddie, because he was a lawyer, he was also really the primary way that Al Capone was kept safe. He was able to sort of maneuver the legal system, keep him out of jail, protect him. He was, he was doing everything that Al Capone needed. And because of this, he was financially taken care of. He was in a good spot. The legend says that Al Capone one day gifted him a home that took up an entire city block of the city of Chicago. Can you imagine going from a small apartment above a grocery store in St. Louis to an entire city block in the city of Chicago? Now, Eddie, Eddie had all sorts of moments where he witnessed the atrocities of what Al Capone's regime was raining down on the city. He witnessed those murders. He witnessed mom and pop stores being shut down because they couldn't afford the debts that they were being dragged into. He watched people be murdered, saw young girls dragged into prostitution. He saw all of this. And he was constantly faced with a choice. Would you do something or would you just let it happen? But you guys know this, that when you have that much money, when you have that much power, when you have that much recognition, it's hard to make the right choices. In fact, this is a story that we've seen play out in the human condition as we've been walking through this book of 1 Kings. We've seen that when people get 
a decent amount of wealth, a decent amount of power, making wise and good decisions become more and more complicated. And as we've walked through this book, what we've noticed for the first 11 chapters or so of this story unfold the story of Solomon. Solomon was David's son, was known throughout the, the history of of Israel to be someone who had been made very wise because God had gifted it to him. But what we know about Solomon is that he started really well and yet he ended very poorly. He ended so poorly, in fact, that God came to him and was like, listen, Solomon, you have wrecked this thing so royally that now I'm going to rip the kingdom out of your fingers. But he gives him a caveat. He says, I'm not actually going to rip it out of your hands. I'm going to rip it out of your son's hands. And the generations that follow you will be the ones who experience the fallout of this. And I always find it interesting when God presents this to him, Solomon doesn't even go like, no, don't do it. It just happens. And so what we catch in the remainder of 1 Kings is the picture of the way that, that curse, that fallout, ends up revealing itself. The way that it unfolds. And we find king after king after king gets put into power. And the scriptures seem to tell a pretty negative story about these kings. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read sort of the outlines of history and new kings are coming in, I always get lost in the timeline. I always get lost in the location of like, where in the, how are you king? I thought he was just king. What happened to all you guys? So I had our creative department work up a little graph for us today to work through. Yeah, some of you type A people, you love a good graph. This is what happens. So Solomon, God comes to him and says, you've messed up royally. The kingdom is going to be split into two. And so what we find is the kingdom gets split into two. It gets split into Israel and Judah, the north kingdom and the south kingdom. And in Israel, what we find is that a king named Rehoboam comes into power. And he, excuse me, a king named Jeroboam, not Rehoboam, that's Judah. Jeroboam, he comes into power and he's like the cause of the split. He's the one who sort of initiates all of this. And his big idea for the kingdom is that he should install two golden calves and that they should actually worship those instead of God, which if you were a good little Israelite boy or girl, you would have heard that story and gone, that seems a little problematic because didn't our people try this once? And it didn't go great for them. But he says, you know what, this time it's going to work. And sure enough, it doesn't. Along come two other kings, kings named Nadab and Basha. And what it says is that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is a phrase that you're going to hear over and over again. In Israel, another king shows up. His name's Elon. What's funny about him is he's not king long enough for us to really know if he's going to be good or bad. He's king for a very short period of time because the king after him, King Zimri, he actually kills him. He's king for seven days and Zimri's like, this isn't going to work for me. Cuts him down. But Zimri had some issues of his own, mentally unstable, certainly shouldn't have been in any sort of leadership. And he, the story goes, he finds himself one night in the palace sets the palace on fire with himself in it. Takes his own life. It's a brutal story. So Zimri does this. Two more kings in Israel show up, Omri and Ahab, and you can imagine what it says about them, that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So far, the kings, not batting a thousand. The narrative that is cast over these kings is that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. At least in Israel, you go down to Judah, which this is following the line, the direct line of Solomon. And Rehoboam shows up as king, and you can imagine that what the Bible says about him is that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He built up the high places for cult worship. He constructed what were known as Asherah poles for the people to worship. Think like a tiki, so it's this large wooden pole that's had a god carved into it that they would bow down and they would worship. 
doesn't go well for him, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It then comes to a king named Abijah, and Abijah, it says, well, he committed all the sins of, of the people before him. He did all the things just as bad. He wouldn't, though, the caveat for him is he would not fully commit his heart to the Lord. He would sort of dip his toe in, be like, Yahweh, we know you saved us, we know the stories, but he would not fully commit his heart to the Lord. He did the sins of his father, Rehoboam. And then all of a sudden in the narrative comes this character named Asa. Let me hear you say Asa. And Asa, the story that is cast around him is a slightly different story. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Kings 15, starting in verse 9. This is the story of King Asa. It says, in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem 41 years. So he had a good little run. He did a pretty good job. His grandmother's name was Makah, Makah, daughter of Abishalom. I've, won, I've done that all week. Every time I read her name, I just sound like a bird. Makah. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. He even deposed his grandmother, Makah, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all of his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. So, we see this unveiling story of the kings. King after king after king after king. The scripture says that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then this one king shows up that all of a sudden is classified completely differently. Is viewed completely differently. It says that he actually puts God first. He has God at the forefront of his mind. What's interesting and what I think makes Asa so different is that he had been handed sort of a plate to eat. He was told, this is what it means to be king. Every king before you, this is what they had done. And what Asa does is says, that's not how this is going to go anymore. What I would propose to you today is that what we see Asa doing is that Asa steps in and he puts a stop to the trail of generational brokenness in his family. Puts a complete stop to it. Think about what happens in the midst of his life. Before we, do, before we talk about him specifically, think about in the Bible, family is this assumed community that can bring about massive blessing or massive chaos. In the Bible, it is proposed all the time that what happens to families what, what, the brokenness or the blessing that occurs in one generation often finds itself flowing down to the next generations if unchecked. And that's not just a story in the Bible. That's a story about us. The brokenness, once it starts, it tends to be this hard train to put a stop to. What I want to suggest for us today as we sort of dive into this story a little bit more is that if we want to put a stop to the trail of generational brokenness in our own lives, we also must dismantle the dysfunction of our past. Just a nice, light little sermon for Sunday morning. 
we must dismantle the dysfunction of our past. Think about what Asa does in this story. He steps in as king, and he sees the way that everyone has been king up to this point. It says that he steps in, he kicks the male prostitutes out from leading worship. So think about this. Instead of having priests lead worship to Yahweh, there are male prostitutes who are giving their whole body in a way that we would say that's not how we want you to give your whole body in worship to God, but they are offering everything that they have right in this space. And Asa says, nope, we're not doing that anymore. He finds all the idols that have been built up all around the city, and he says, no, we're not doing that anymore. And I love the language that is used in this story. Like Asa gets violent with what is going on. It says that he cuts down the idols, he takes them, and he burns them. Think about what also happens. His grandmother has somehow found her way in the position of queen mother, which is a totally made-up role. And if you ever found yourself in a job where you're like, this role is pretty made up, isn't it? You don't know what I'm doing. She's made up this job for herself. She's classified herself as queen mother. And Asa deposes her, kicks her out of leadership. Can I tell you the greatest challenge of what Asa does in the midst of trying to dismantle the dysfunction of the past? is that he has to deal with his family of origin. Can you imagine how hard that must have been? The idols that he's tearing down are not just random sculptures that appeared. They're idols that his grandparents and his parents, maybe his aunts and uncles, it's their family relics. And he's taking them and cutting them down. He's kicking his grandmother out. He's saying, Grandma, listen, (laughs) McCaw, you've done enough. He says, listen, I can't, you are not a queen. You are not, you don't get a voice in leadership here. He's, can you imagine how hard it would be to look at your family of origin and the things that they have left behind and say, man, this is not good. Some of you know that feeling of looking at the things that have been handed down to you You've had to go, man, we, we can't do this anymore. Some of you have had to make the hard decisions of putting up boundaries with your relatives, with your family, with your parents even, because of the dysfunction that has started to flow down. The hardest thing that Asa does is he begins to deal with his family of origin. But here's the truth about families, right? Let's tell the whole truth. Families can provide us with beautiful gifts and beautiful blessings. Some of you are in here because your, your family, they figured out how to like handle and steward the wealth and the resources that they have. And they've handed that off to you. So now you too have figured out how to handle and steward your financial resources well. Your family is in good financial standing because of a legacy that was left in generations before you. Some of you, you had family members who they taught you how to look past like the, the, the chaos of the world and to see into the eyes of the poor, the broken, and the marginalized, and to care about them as if they were your actual neighbor. And you're now passing that legacy on to your kids. There are some of you in here who you're in church today because a grandmother or a grandfather said, you are going to church with me. And that legacy of faith has been poured out into your life. And you know what? You're trying to pour that out into the next generation of people. But while families can provide major blessings, they can also hand off some real brokenness. 
they can also hand off some real dysfunction. And I know there's some of you who are in here going, you know, Rory, listen, my family wasn't great, but I'm not a victim. I like, I've become, I'm like a son of God. I am, I'm not even worried about any of that anymore. I love what uh, the pastor and author Pete Scazzaro says about this. He says, Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. <laughs> Which is a really clever way of saying, you can't escape your family of origin. You just can't escape it. You can try to pretend it was never there. You can try to ignore it. You can even be ignorant of it. But the Bible gives us this picture that the brokenness that exists in one generation is often handed down to the next generation. For some of you, you see this to be true in your own lives. You see the way dysfunction has flown down. So what I want to do real quick, um, I want to take us to therapy for about eight minutes here. And I want to ask some questions that I think are worth all of us pondering about our family of origin and how they are, in fact, affecting the way that we are living our lives. Sound fair? I was going to do it anyways. Okay, first question. What are your relational patterns? There's some great work that's been done in the world of what's called attachment theory about how you connect and relate to the people that you love or that love you. And what we're all striving for is what they would call secure attachment, where we know how to be in a stable, healthy, loving relationship, where even when things go wrong, we're able to work through conflict and do it. We're not too affected by the pain that has been handed to us. We're not too, we're not too rejecting of what is going on. We are able to stand securely in relationships. That's what we're all striving for. But the truth is, is that most of us have been handed a style of connecting and relating with one another that is not exactly um, secure. Some of, us, some of us live out what would be called like an avoidant attachment style. These are the people that when someone says to them, I love you, they all of a sudden distance themselves because what they've just heard is that there is someone who would like to know them and care for them and be vulnerable with them and hear all of their needs and wants and desires. And that's terrifying. They're the people that when someone shows up in their lives and says, hey, I want to be close to you, they just put a stiff arm up. I don't know if that's some of you in the room. Maybe it's not. Maybe what you carry around is, is what would be called like an anxious attachment style. These are the people that whenever they're in a deep, close, loving relationship, what they find themselves doing is constantly being skeptical of their standing in the relationship. They always wonder if they're going to do one little thing wrong and all of a sudden the relationship is going to completely fracture. These people are sort of hard to pin down on like where they think what they feel can lead to really dysfunctional behavior. Then there's also, there's also some of us who live in what I would call scattered attachment. We find ourselves sometimes being avoidant, sometimes being anxious. There's no rhyme or reason to it. We are all over the map in how we relate to the people that we love and the people who love us the most. And you know what's interesting about asking the question of what are your relational patterns? is that it doesn't just affect like you and your spouse. It doesn't just affect you and your parents. It doesn't even just affect you and your kids. You know what, if you don't figure out how you relate to people and how to come into security with it, you know what this will ultimately affect? Your relationship with God. There are some of you in here who have been Christians your whole life and yet if someone were to look at you and be like, do you know that God loves you? You would be like, I don't know. There's some of you who have followed Jesus for a really long time you are so deeply filled with shame and embarrassment about your story 
Because every time you hear that there is a God who loves you and wants to forgive you, all you can do is put a stiff arm up and say, I'm sure he does for others, but not for me. There are others of us in this room, if we're honest, God just has a hard time finding out where we are on this thing. Because ultimately our relationship with God is between us and the loving creator of the entire universe and he is drawing into intimacy with us. And if we find ourselves scattered, anxious, or detached, pushing people away, man, we're gonna do that with him too. Another question that's worth asking is what behaviors have you accepted as holy that are just in fact sinful? And most of us would say, well, none. But these behaviors are pretty subconscious. I would propose that there are people, maybe even in this room, who find themselves going, it's just normal to medicate your pain with alcohol. That's just normal. Doesn't everybody do that? These are the behaviors that you at one point growing up would say something like, that's just grandpa being grandpa. And now you find yourself and people around you are going, well, that's just you being you. What are the behaviors that you have accepted as holy that are just flat out, in fact, sinful? For some of us, it's anger. What we've been taught about anger is that you do something with it. When someone makes you mad, well, what do you do? Well, you hit them. You fight them. It's the behaviors that have been handed down from one generation to the next, and you've just accepted them as subconscious. Maybe it's even as far as, well, you know, everybody watches pornography. It's just, that's typical. That's what we do. It's just what people do. Everyone cheats on their spouse. It's just what people do. These aren't behaviors you, I'm going to let you know. I'm going to give you some freedom. These probably aren't behaviors that you drummed up on your own. They're behaviors that have either been handed down generationally or you've seen culturally and you have just accepted them as normal. This is the way that people live. The last question that I think is worth asking is what narrative scripts have you embraced? Maybe that's a term that you're unfamiliar with. A narrative script is a story. What is the story that you have been told by generations before you What are the stories you have been told about yourself from culture that you have gone, you know what? That's just what it is. There's no way around it. I think about this with myself. Some of you know this, but um, I'm the only person in my family, immediate or extended, whose marriage has not been touched by divorce. I'm the only person. And I don't say that with pride. I say that with a lot of humility. My parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, brothers. It goes on and on and on. And you know what I realized when I first got married, I had this moment with my wife, I don't know, maybe six months into us being married, where I rolled over one day and I went, you're still here. Some of you might've had this moment too. You were like, you're not going anywhere, are you? And I realized that I sort of had this idea that like we would get married, but somewhere along the line, she would just be like, I'm not doing this with you anymore, which would be fair in some cases. But you know what I recognize now is how that script informed every conflict that we had when we were first married. I assumed that if a fight like reached a certain level, the only next logical step was someone to be like, well, I guess we're done then. The script that I had bought into 
I was a Christian. I, I was in ministry. I was a pastor. The script I had bought into is that my marriage, like every marriage before mine, will inevitably end in divorce. I wonder what the scripts are that you believe. What are the stories that you have bought into that have been handed down from you from generation to generation or just culturally been suggested to you and you've just gone, yeah, that's how it works. Think about Asa in this story. He's a king who has been given a manual on how to be king. And you know what that manual says? Well, um, you, you say you believe in God, but you do everything else that says you don't. You build up idols. You keep building up idols. You have male prostitutes running the worship of the people. You're power hungry. You're money hungry. He has been handed a script on what to do here. And he chooses against it. He chooses against it. He makes the brave, courageous decision, not just to choose against it, but to choose against the family of origin and the legacy that is being handed to him. Friends, I would wonder what in your life today are the things that you need to get like violent with, the scripts, the narratives, the ideas that have been handed down to you that you have just said that's how this works, the relational patterns, and you need to do what Asa does. You need to get like real violent with them, cut them down, take them out, burn them, never do. I wonder what those places are for some of you. But can I tell you something that I think is really interesting, especially now culturally? It's quite, um, I don't know if it's fun, but it's something for us to be like, man, I can look across the generations my parents, my grandparents, the culture, I can look at all the things that are going on that I'm going, you know what, I'm refusing to embrace and adopt that. I think it's really easy to do that. You know what's actually really hard is to figure out what you want instead. I think about the way that this story unfolds for him, starting in verse 14 again. It says, although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord. Read, he brought back into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. Friends, what I, what I recognize about Asa is that it's not just enough for him to go, we're not worshiping idols, we're kicking the prostitute, we're not doing that. He says, you know what, we've got to do, we have to restore this. We've got to build a new legacy. I would maybe propose this to you today, that it isn't enough for us to dismantle the dysfunction of our past. We must also construct a new legacy for the future. Asa's mind, his heart, it says it is turned back towards God. He has put God in its proper place. He's also gone and grabbed the articles that were once a part of worship, were once a part of the sacred temple, and he goes, listen, they've been removed for whatever reason. We are going to put them back in their place. Friends, it is not enough for you to be like, I don't want my kids to do A, B, C, and D. If you don't give them alternatives, they will do whatever they want. And those alternatives have to be life-giving. It's not enough for you to say, I don't want to get a divorce. You have to figure out what behaviors need to exist in your marriage so that divorce is not even an option. It's not enough for you to say, I don't want infidelity to rob me of my deepest, most meaningful relationship in life. You have to figure out what it means to be a good husband and a good wife. You can't just say, I'm going to tear these things down. You can't just say, I'm not going to relate to people the way my mom or my dad did. It's not enough for you to say, I'm not going to care about my finances the way that my grandfather or my grandmother did. You have to have a new operating procedure here. Asa focuses his attention back on God. 
He puts the things back in the temple that need to be. And you know how we know this is true? Go back to the very beginning of the text, verse 11. This is how Asa is described. He did what was right in the, Lord, in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. Now you as a reader are supposed to catch a problem with that sentence. What's the problem? Who's his dad? It's not David. What is the writer telling you about him? He hasn't just like built a new, he has been refamilied into the family of God through his choices. He is no longer defined as you're the son of a corrupt king. He says, no, you're the son of a king whose heart was chasing after me. He has been refamilied into the family of God. Asa's new legacy is defined by him being refamilied into the family of God, and the same can be true for us. Your family of origin does not define you. The legacy that has been handed to you does not define you. You can do something new with the life that you have been given. Can I tell you one more story this morning? In World War II, there was a pilot named Butch. We're just going to call him Butch. That's his name. And Butch was stationed near Papua New Guinea in the South Pacific. And on February 20th of 1942, Butch was out on a typical mission run. And the way that this worked for a pilot at his time is they gave him enough fuel to get from where he was going, from where he was to where he was going, and then get back again. They did this to keep costs limited, to keep prices down. They, they did this so that he would have enough to just do what he needed to do. And while he's out, all of a sudden a call comes over the radio. The Japanese spies have located the Lexington carrier. This was the ship that he had flown off of. And the Lexington is out in the middle of the sea. The Japanese have spotted it, and they are now sending planes to attack it. And Butch is doing something completely different. So he hurries back, and as he's hurrying back, he sees these Japanese bombers in the distance that are getting ready to make a run at the ship that has hundreds of soldiers, hundreds of his friends, family members, people that are known and loved, people that are a part of his tribe. He sees this, getting, this devastation getting ready to happen. And in that moment, he is faced with a choice. Do I just run? Do I just land my plane and jet? Disappear into the jungle? Or do I do the brave and courageous thing and attempt to save these people that I love. And what he does is he chooses to go back into the battle. He goes in, he has very little ammunition with him. He starts clipping the wings of these Japanese planes, taking them out. He helps save this massive ship, him and one other pilot. All because in one moment where he could have turned a blind eye to the atrocity, to the injustice, to the pain that was about to unfold before him, he has the courage and the bravery to say, you know what? I'm going to step into this. Can I tell you what's wild about this story? Can you guess who Butch's dad is? It's Eddie. The story I told you at the top of this message. The son of a lawyer for one of the most notorious crime bosses in all of American history. His son became a hero. Won a Congressional Medal of Honor for his, his duties. And the story goes that he went into the military because he saw what was happening with his dad and said, I'm not doing that. 
I'm not gonna be a part of injustice and pain and loss that is caused among the city of Chicago. I'm not doing that. I'm gonna go do something else. He makes a choice to look at his family of origin, to look at the legacy that is being handed to him and say, you know what? That's not me. For some of you, that choice exists today as well. To look back at the things that you have been handed, to say, you know what? That's not what I'm carrying into the future. I'm gonna become a new person. I'm gonna be refamilied into the family of God. The beautiful wholeness of this story though, is that while Butch was making a new decision about the kind of person he was going to be, his dad was also wrestling with some of his demons. In fact, the story goes that Eddie, easy Eddie O'Hare, had found himself sitting in a Catholic mass and had begun to contemplate the atrocities that he saw around him. Weeks and months of him going back to mass, he all of a sudden realizes that he cannot be a part of this any longer. And the story goes that the reason he made that choice is that he saw the potential future that his son had and said, I am not going to ruin the next generation because of my own sins and dysfunction. And Eddie calls up a dear friend of his in the FBI. He turns in Al Capone. He is the primary witness in the trial that sends Al Capone to prison. And two days later, Eddie is gunned down in his car in the streets of Chicago. And the story goes Then when the police showed up, found his body, all they found on him were two things, a rosary and a crucifix. It isn't just enough for us to look and say, I'm not gonna carry on some of the dysfunction from my family of origin. Eddie is a perfect picture of what it looks like for for us to also go. I'm not gonna hand this dysfunction to the next generation. I am gonna fight And even if it costs me my life, I will make sure that we do not pass this on. Friends, would you stand this morning as we prepare to come to the table? Because there's no clearer place of what it looks like for us to be refamilied into the family of God than to come to the table of the Lord. I wanna invite our communion servers to come forward this morning. We remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is given For you, every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? He broke it so that our brokenness, our family's brokenness does not get to define us anymore. We have been refamilied into the family of God. That same night he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink, would you do this in remembrance of me? This is a gift. God has given this to us as a reminder that we are a part of the family of God. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Would you come forward to receive communion?
Would you open up your hands to receive this benediction this morning? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Guys, it's always, it's such a gift on Sunday mornings to gather with the people that you are in community with. It's such a beautiful thing. Coffee and donuts, fellowship hour in the cafeteria. If you're a lady, don't forget to sign up for women's retreat. Stop by Connect Central, holler at one of us. We hope you guys have a great week and we'll see you next weekend.